we were actually standing at boat stations in immersion suits, ready to abandon ship. What do you say about the willingness, the ethics of the animal, to give itself to a hunter? They chose not to work on it. It was a sort of backwaters problem. Population was not something that you studied in economics. Hello and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. I'm Raphael Korpahoffman, joined in our studio by Nick Collin for this week's episode on changing climate. We interviewed academics from across the university who research issues relating to the environment from both human and scientific perspectives. We spoke with Professor Julian Dowd as well, director of the Scott Polar Institute in Cambridge, about his experiences of travelling extensively in both the Arctic and Antarctic to study glaciers, ice caps, and also his run-ins with wildlife. The Scott Polar Research Institute is part of Cambridge University. It's a sub-department of the Geography Department. It's historic because the building itself is a national memorial to Captain Scott and his four companions, Wilson, Bowers, Oates and Evans, who died on their way back from the South Pole uh, in 1912. And the Institute was founded as a legacy to them, and indeed uh, with the vision that it would become a centre for research in both polar regions and also as um, an internationally renowned library, archive and museum. The importance of polar research is, is, has changed really uh, since I began my own work about 40 years ago. Um, in, the, in those days, the polar regions, the Arctic and the Antarctic, were seen as interesting academically, but rather isolated from the rest of the global system. But today it's clearly recognised that the polar regions, um, the icy world, the glaciers, the ice sheets and the sea ice cover, um, are very important as drivers of several fundamental processes concerning the linked atmosphere-ocean system. Um, looking forward over the next several decades, what do you think the biggest changes will be to the Arctic regions? The polar regions are particularly sensitive to the climate change that we're observing today. The temperature has warmed by about 0.8 of a degree relative to the 1960-1970 time. Um, and that warming, that global warming, is amplified in the polar regions and particularly in the Arctic. And what that is doing is removing something very white and reflective, the sea ice, and replacing it with something very dark and absorbent of energy, the seawater itself. And if the seawater warms just a little bit more from one year to the next, that clearly makes it less easy for sea ice to form. And so this is a self-reinforcing process. And this is the exact reason why all of the 20 or so major general circulation models of the atmosphere and ocean system predict that the Arctic will um, increase in temperature about double the rate of the global average. And of course, since there's a huge amount of ice, not only in the sea, but on land, as the Greenland ice sheet and major ice caps in the, and glaciers in the Canadian Arctic and Alaska, and indeed in the Eurasian Arctic in places like Svalbard too, this is obviously going to make a disproportionate difference to the rate at which they melt, and therefore with the implications that that has for sea level rise. So the Arctic is widely seen and widely recognised as probably the most sensitive part of the global climate system. Right, and so you mentioned that you've been studying uh, polar regions or glaciers for about 40 years. If you were to think ahead 40 years, um, what kind of things would you imagine that uh, glaciologists and polar researchers would be 
studying and contending with. Yeah, so so the implications um, of climate change for the future of, if you like, the icy world um, are firstly that it is likely that the Arctic Ocean will be largely ice-free on the timescale of a few decades. Some people say it may be in one or two decades. Some people, some numerical models suggest it might be in three or four decades. But certainly over the coming de- decades, um, the Arctic in general will be much more open to, for example, commerce and the ability of ships to transit both north of Russia over what we call the Northern Sea Route to the Far East from Europe or westward through the Northwest Passage. Because we're very interested in personal experiences on Switchboard, I was wondering if you'd be able to tell me perhaps one particularly memorable experience from any of the research expeditions that you've been on? Um, yes, I, I mean, uh, one, of, one of my l- less edifying experiences uh, was actually being in a ship in an East Greenland fjord, um, this was about 20 years ago now, um, which struck an iceberg and started to tilt over at a very alarming rate, that's the ship, not the iceberg, yeah. um, and we were actually standing at boat stations in immersion suits, ready to abandon ship. And after about half an hour, the situation was in fact stabilised. But we still sat there for about three days with a complete communications blackout, trying to sort out you know, what exactly was going to happen next. Because I've worked in the polar regions for several decades... I don't think of them as anything like as isolated as they were. So when I first went into the field to do my PhD on the largest ice caps in Eurasia, um, in eastern Svalbard, um, about 35 years ago, there we had very limited communications once we were set down on the ice surface. And and two of us were there for about a month. Um, And we had just daily communications when the HF radio worked nicely. And sometimes we didn't communicate for several days. And then, you know, to compare my own experiences with those of, for example, Scott and Shackleton, it's nothing. They were actually isolated for up to two to three years, dependent on the particular expedition, with absolutely no communication with the outside world at all. Shackleton, when he finally emerged from the Weddell Sea a hundred years ago after the sinking of the Endurance, wrote in his diary when he and his two companions got back to the whaling station on South Georgia, he wrote, the first human sound, apart from our own voices, that we have heard for almost three years was the morning klaxon at Gritviken Station on South Georgia. Um, so did you ever have any kind of interactions with um, polar wildlife? That was particularly memorable. When we were going in a tracked vehicle from the McMurdo Station on Antarctica over the sea ice to Captain Scott's historic hut at Cape Evans, um, the driver pointed to some little dots in the distance. I could barely see them. But he said, "Hmm, if we stop the vehicle, turn off the engine, and go and sit on the snow about 100 yards away, they'll probably come up to us. So I said, who are they? He said, it's a few emperor penguins. Ten minutes later, the emperor penguins are just walking among us, literally as close as you are talking to me, and absolutely amazing. We spoke to Dr Michael Bravo, head of the Circumpolar History Group at the Scott Polar Research Institute, about his time spent living with an Inuit community in northern Canada. Where do you think the love for the the polar region came from originally? That's a very interesting question. I'm glad you ask it because you'll be aware that when one thinks about the polar regions, there's a, there's a large veil of romanticism 
that's both in some sense uh, helpful because it captures public interest and in other senses it's quite potentially very damaging because it creates um, illusions about uh, the people who live there as though they inhabit a, I've often heard it said uh, wrongly that they inhabit a different sense of, of time from the rest of us. That, of course, that's not true. Um, so in a sense, the fascination is with the engagement and the experience of being uh, in northern places, in my case, northern Canada, the northern uh, Scandinavia, Sapmi, the, the world of the Sami. I, th I think that's the, the key, is the experience of being there. Of course, there's an appreciation of the skies, of traveling over the sea ice, of eating the food, uh, but also with the relationships, I think, and the friendships that are built up over the years. So initially, uh, I was interested in the history of exploration, um, rooted in the history of empire, of course. Uh, and I wanted to know what the story of exploration in the Arctic, that's so definitive and continues to define the Arctic in the geographical imagination. I wanted to know what the story looked like if you flipped it over and tried to tell it from an Inuit point of view. So that was the first uh, project and the first kind of engagement. How did you find uh, the process of building working relationships with this other community, other culture? So I arrived uh, in the community, and the first thing I did was I was interviewed by the, the Hamlet Council, the local government. You know, what are you here for? What do you plan to take away from us? So when I, uh, at the age of oh, 20 or something, arrived and said, I would really like to know more about you and your culture, um, perhaps it was to, uh, greeted with a, a note of skepticism. But the question that was thrown back at me was, well, do you, do you really want to know more about our culture? You know, because if you do, uh, we're going to tell you, you know, maybe you will learn more about our lives, so look out. And that's good. I mean, that was a, um, the beginning of understanding that uh, seeing the world from other people's perspectives takes you new, on new journeys. How did we come to we being, you know, some notion of Euro-American Western society, come to imagine the Arctic as being this kind of homogeneous blank space? And that's the subject of my, my, uh, my current book, uh, which I can happy to say is coming out next month, uh, which is a book about the North Pole. And that goes uh, back to the Renaissance and even a little bit to the, uh, to the ancient world of the Greeks. And it suited, it suited the, um, the early empires, the early capital interests of particularly the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, empires of the 16th century um, and the cartographers of Europe to imagine uh, an Arctic space that precisely because it, it resisted navigation. You know, it was a tough place for ships. Uh, many went out there and didn't return. So it, it suited them in many respects to describe these as wastelands, in a sense, places that either lacked value or prevented, prevented shipping and navigation, which was tantamount to the same thing. If we were to be having this conversation again in 50 years time, what would you say the major issues would be that we'd be discussing with regards to the Arctic? Uh, so today, uh, social media is a very critical part of the fabric of northern societies. They are very 
you know, media savvy people. And that is crucial because the way in which people are connected across northern societies. And I think what might surprise me most today is to see how, and delighted, how important staying connected remains for a culture in which survival was, yeah, required certain kinds of knowledge about how not to freeze to death. But Inuit would say, more importantly, it required skill and knowledge in how you stay connected with the people that together, you know, collectively, you take care of each other and you keep yourself alive. That seems to me one of the big kind of take-home messages. In your time that you've spent living with Inuit communities, are there any particular um, moments or specific experiences that come to mind when you're reflecting on the time that you spent with them? But I was also able to spend quite a lot of time with elders who were born roughly around 1900 and remembered, many of them, because it's an oral culture, they remembered stories that were told to them in some cases when they were four or five years old. So the oral memory reaches back really fast to the middle of the 19th century without too much problem. So uh, one elder, Noah Piogatuk, who was uh, born around 1900, uh, he was one of the elders who was able to tell me about, on the one hand, some elders remember details about the explorers and how they brought uh, certain kinds of biscuits and tobacco, and as kids, playing with biscuit would be fun because it rolls. So you might say that's trivial, but they were uh, vivid memories. But at the same time, the same elders were really articulate about their, they wouldn't have used the word post-colonial, they would have said colonial politics, the Arctic. These same elders are really articulate about what they hoped that land claims and new forms of self-government could achieve. And they were, it was wonderful, I mean, it was very wonderful in many respects that they uh, were hoping to, um, I think they were very politically equitable, could I see that? Meaning that they hoped to reestablish a new set of norms so that uh, the peoples of Canada and the Inuit could live, you know, could live together on fair terms. I just wondered if you had any experiences that you'd like to share about your interactions with wildlife. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, I suppose one of, the, one of the benefits of having traveled extensively in the north with Inuit is, I can say, it's delicious. <laughs> and yes, you know, whales and seals, they are beautiful. But also, it's significant that besides be providing food and clothing, you know, the freshness of animal meat. What do you say about the willingness, the ethics of the animal to give itself to a hunter? That continues to be important and to fascinate audiences all over the world because, because that speaks to an ethics of relationships between humans and animals. And it brings back uh, the critical importance of our interdependence on animals. And you'll know from recent reports that the loss of species diversity, of the loss of so many animals since I was a kid, 1970, is, is a real uh, ecological fact. You might even say a super fact, a fact of such great importance. So the experience of being in the Arctic really brings home interdependence and how we cannot really go on without, without properly uh, acknowledging that and reflecting on its implications for how we are living. 
Alex Jones and I spoke with Sir Partha Dasgupta, recipient of the prestigious Tyler Prize in 2016, and who has worked on a papal panel on the sciences. We spoke with him about his expertise in environmental economics, the impact that the climate has on human development, and his life since arriving at Cambridge from India in the mid-1960s. Uh, a great deal of my work has been to reconstruct economics by uh, introducing nature into uh, the lives of people. And you have to do it, uh, that's easier said than done, because you have to do it at every layer, starting from the household to village communities through nations. And sometimes, if you're really bold, think of the whole world as a world economy. As I say, the, the, the paper that I wrote for my PhD thesis on population, that was, nobody was, it's not as though it was, any, I, only I could have done it. No, that's not, you mustn't think that. Anybody could have done it. Anyone of 500 economists, right? It's just that they, didn't, they chose not to work on it. It was a sort of backwaters problem. Population for, was not something that you studied in economics. So you worry about choice, what food to eat, what clothes to wear, travel and everything. That's, you know, how we spend our income is, of course, at the heart of economics and then the implications of that. But the one choice that we do make, or at least your parents made, um, which is as important as any other choice, namely how many children to have, those who can actually control it, that is, that's not up for grabs. That's not part of economics. And that is very odd. I somehow stumbled onto that problem. It was a philosophically very interesting problem. Um, philosophers had talked about it. The great Trinity philosopher Henry Sidgwick had written on it, but it had become a non-problem, non-issue. Now, it probably has intellectual, there are intellectual reasons as to why it had become uh, not just not fashionable, but non not politically correct to ask that question. It's a, such a private matter that, um, that you don't discuss it. But increasingly I had felt that uh, procreation is not all that private a matter because it has consequences on other people through the finiteness of the biosphere. So if that happens, then it's a very interesting thing to discuss, which is it's both private and a public act. Uh, and we we subvert the public act part of it by pretending it, there is no public consequences. So a, a great deal of my work has been, when trying to understand poverty, I was also trying to embed in that study of, uh, of procreation behavior. Because in sub-Saharan Africa, the fertility rate is very, very high. As you all know, it's an average woman produces nearly five live children during her reproductive phase, even now. That's very high. And you need to ask why. I mean, you know, they have reasons as to why. Now, uh, many people have studied it, but they're all anthropologists and maybe a few demographers. But economists, no. We just assume that's the way it's going to happen. And then you discuss economics based on those projections. What will happen to Sub-Saharan Africa 2050? Well, first look at the population projection, see what savings are required, what aid they may need, and so forth and so on. But you don't ask, are there ways of helping people to uh, alter the 
their choices. And that one of the things that I, that broad education that I had, uh, I have had over the past 34 years from colleagues here, um, has made me sensitive to issues which most often get uh, overlooked, which is on the biosphere, on the, in the case of the biosphere, in some sense of greater substance and problema problematics is species extinction that is undergone. Now, it is being exacerbated by climate change, that's for sure, but it's not exclusively due to climate change. It was happening even before climate change started putting its bite on us. It's happening because we, can, you know, we deforest, we transform land into farms, and we constrain the space that the various populations need in order to be able to flourish. So the functional diversity of uh, nature services uh, has re been reduced enormously. The, it's not for nothing that we biologists now talk about the sixth extinction, which I don't know if you have heard of that expression. Uh, then that's really momentous, and it's a slow burner, and we are not addressing that. And of course, one reason I address it, I and mean, I think it's important, is that it's connected to population. So we are in a world in which population is not being subject to scrutiny, and it's growing at a really very high rate. In 1950, just after the war, world population was about 2.5 billion. Now it's 7.6 billion, and pushing towards 11 billion at the end of the century. Meanwhile, of course, we're all concerned with wanting to have more food, more everything. So the idea of growth in the standard of living is not to be questioned. Throughout, taking on as average, of course, if you're very poor countries, that's a different matter. So there are these two issues, these classes of issues which are not under discussion. And uh, I feel, I think my experience in Cambridge has made me more sensitive to those neglected aspects of the biosphere's tra trauma uh, than it would be otherwise. So there's more to environmental problems than climate change, a lot more. So if we were to um, have this conversation again in 2050, and we were discussing the developments that have taken place between now and then mm -hmm. in the field of environmental science, but also more specifically in environmental economics, what would you think we would be, we would be discussing? If, if I had to make a prediction, one thing I think we will say to ourselves in 19, 2050 is why didn't we pick up signals that come from small-scale enterprises? I don't mean financial enterprises, economic enterprises. I meant human doings. Um, to see that they may be a reflection of things happening at the global scale. So we do observe in countless examples that ecologists have studied and anthropologists have studied of very local ecosystems going under, transforming grasslands, local grasslands, flipping over to becoming shrublands, uh, wetlands being contaminated, and then dying, dying in the sense of doing, being unable to do what wetlands usually do, which is degrading material, uh, in other words, rubbish, cleaning water, that sort of thing. Now, we take all that for complete granted. 
it's sort of as though it's happening, you know, it's, we take it for granted that there is a natural supply of all that stuff, all that service is hidden, all these microbes which are doing all the work in the soil and so forth, all that's happening. We don't care about that. We don't think about them. But there's a gigantic numbers of factories which are churning out services which we use on a daily basis, transforming it into goods and services, produced goods and services. Now, the it's issue isn't that the world the biosphere is going to collapse, blah. That doesn't mean anything to me because it's, it's huge. And, but what can happen unless we are careful, in my judgment, whatever understanding I have, it'll go through a sequential round of flips, tipping points you, these days you call. And it's not going to be global tipping points. It'll be local tipping points. We've seen the local ones but we don't choose to ignore them because they don't really amount to much, except for those who live near it. So I come back to the work I was doing with poverty, a village which goes under and then they have to migrate. That's not funny for them, but in the larger scale of things, okay, they're, they're moving. Um, it may be we will see something by 2050 of the plight of sub-Saharan Africa because they're growing at a furious rate in terms of numbers. And uh, when I say furious, I'm not being funny here or being melodramatic. Uh, the UN's latest forecast or projection is that sub-Saharan African's population will move, rise from about 1.1 billion now to 4 billion. So there'll be 3 more billion people there. If, now, the pressure that increase, uh, by 2050, it will be less than that, by the way. But already you can see stresses in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, it's easy enough to think that the sources of problem is governance, uh, uh, lack of good governance. And you, you convert the entire problem into a governance issue because otherwise it's okay. Now, at one level, of course, it is governance. That's what we are discussing here in this interview. If we don't take care of certain problems, then things are going to come biting at us. And so at the end of the day, we'll say it's governance. But the governance has to act on, it's not good saying simply, let's have good governance. Good governance, by definition, is going to be based on its understanding of the socio-ecological interface. Otherwise, what is it responding to? It needs to have policies and so forth. So it is possible that we will see signals of real serious, major, uh, I wouldn't say catastrophes, stresses in societies, which will have an impact on the rest of the world. That's all we've got time for, but thank you for joining us on this week's episode on changing climate. This episode can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to get updates on our future episodes. Each week, Switchboard connects listeners with people around Cambridge who have interesting stories to tell. If you've heard anything unusual around Cambridge this week, make sure to get in touch with us by emailing switchboard at vastfeed.co.uk. This has been Raphael Corbett-Hoffman and Nick Collin on Switchboard. <laughs>